Welcome to Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director for Doc NYC. Normally on this podcast, I'm talking to documentary filmmakers. But on this episode, I talk to the playwright, Dominique Morisot. The New York Times has called her one of the theater's most penetrating voices. She first came to attention for a trilogy of plays set in Detroit. She's also a writer for the Showtime series Shameless. She has a new play at Lincoln Center called Pipeline that deals with race in American education. This fall, the Berkeley Repertory Theater will debut her new musical about the temptations called Ain't Too Proud to Beg. I wanted to interview Dominique because I'm a fan and my roots are in Detroit. When I was a teenager in the 1980s, going to the University of Detroit High School, we heard daily reports of job cuts, crime, drugs, people moving out, like in the Temptation song. People moving out, people moving in, why? Because of the color of the skin. Run, 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 but you sure can't hide. Probably you've read reports that Detroit is coming back, that artists are moving in for cheap rents, new small businesses are opening. Those newspaper stories are usually written by out-of-town journalists. There's a truth to them, but they don't tell the full story of Detroit. Journalism is predominantly white. Detroit is predominantly black. That leaves a big gap in whose story gets told and how it gets told. So this summer, when people are recalling the dark side of Detroit in 1967, I want to focus on one of its brightest new storytellers. I reached Dominique Morisot in Los Angeles, where she's currently based for the new season of Shameless. You were coming of age in Detroit in the 1990s. I think for people who live outside Detroit, they hear all kinds of things about the city. And I wonder what your lived experience was growing up in Detroit. For me, growing up in Detroit was a fantastic experience. I mean, it was, you know, I grew up in a city that was the mayor, the doctors, the police department, the teachers. They all looked like me, you know. At that time in Detroit, growing up in Detroit, I had a strong sense of self. Even when I had like, um, I remember in our my seventh grade, we had at my school, um, I went to Bates Academy, which was like a specialized school. Yeah. But it was, uh, we had an Asian, a Korean American teacher who was like the best, he created the best black history program I've ever seen at a school in my life. You know, it was a it was a, a school wide like game show of Black history that the whole school got involved in. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it in my whole life, and that was done by like our Korean American educator. You know, and so it, it, that's just to say that's the 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 healthy mentality of of self identity in Detroit for me was was massive. I know that in people in other cities when they anytime you've been a so you know so-called minority in an environment, it can do something to your um sense of growth and your esteem and how you feel about like where you stand in the world. And growing up in Detroit sort of was like a bubble at the time of uh, I had no idea that the world didn't look like my city. <laughs> yeah. Was it a uh, awakening when you got out of that bubble? 
Absolutely. Um, I, when I went to the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, which is not, it's only 40 minutes away from Detroit, but it's a whole nother that's a world. Long, that's a long 40 miles, though. A long 40 miles. Um, and uh, I was like blown away. I think I was blown away by um, how scarce we were. <laughs> um, but also, I was one of maybe two my friend who I grew up with, she, she and I grew up together in high school and elementary school. We both went to Michigan and joined their theater department. We were the only two black girls in our, uh, and black people in our class at Michigan um, in our theater program. I quickly also started to see how, how the other is treated, you know, like because I became the other um, instead of the majority. Right. And, uh, and how, how what do you call it, um, the exoticized the other is. And we, we became exoticized um, at our school and sometimes by classmates. I remember when I was in high school at U of D High, uh, a poet coming, a poet named Lawrence Joseph mm-hmm. came and he read poems about Detroit. And that was mind-blowing to me at age 15 or 16, that Detroit was a place that you could write poetry about yeah. uh, or, or make art about because up till then, you know, I didn't really think of it that way. Right. And, um, and, and I wonder if you grew up with a sense that Detroit was a place you could make art about. Uh, yeah, actually, I did. And, you know, because I was introduced as an early, at an early age to writers from uh, Detroit, from Broadside Press Publishing, and, you know, that's a publishing company in Detroit. And I think um, I had a very strong sense of Detroit identity because a friend of mine, she, she was from Ohio, but she, a, a white girlfriend of mine came to Detroit one year with me. And she was, and I took her to a poetry uh, event and like a spoken word event one night. And she was blown away by how many poets talk about Detroit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like how much being a Detroiter is in the vocabulary of a Detroiter and it's in their art and they talk about it even in their own city. Cause you know, she's more used to, we're all New Yorkers. You know, we talk about where we're from when we're not there anymore she was struck by the sense of ownership that people in the city have while they're still living there. Um, and that was some kind of remarkable thing for her. And I, I think that that's, that's sort of what I've always known. So you studied theater at the University of Michigan. And as I understand, you moved to New York, you did dance, you did poetry, and then you came back to, to theater. And I'm, I'm interested what the lure of theater was of you know, of all the forms that you might be drawn to? You know, I will have always, yes, I've been exposed to all the arts when I was growing up. And um, I think theater acting was always my first love. Uh, And, you know, I still do love acting. I'm still, you know, I still consider myself an actress. And I, the, the performing arts in general has always been something for me. So I think once discovering, I, I found my way into theater through poetry. So I think just having the form of, of a play, like being able to write plays and to put acting and dance and poetry all together, you know, that's, I think, why theater speaks to me so much. It's still the live performing arts that is really the thing that moves me. Um, and I think 
for me right now with theater, there's a space I can exercise something in that and and realize a world that really excites me. Um, I still miss dance and I use heightened, some of the heightened other artistic forms of um, performing arts in my work. You know, in Skeleton Crew, we had a dancer last year in the show um, because I, I see a fusion of those art forms in a lot of ways. So, yes, I think theater for me right now feels like a space to hold all of those, my varying um, interests in the, in the arts. Dominique began working on her Detroit trilogy almost 10 years ago. Her first play in that series is called Detroit 67. I didn't know, of course, that it was going to be speaking to a very present time in the world right now. Um, I was just interested in exploring it from a space of, of what I personally came from. Detroit 67 is set against the uprising in July, known to some as the riots and to others as the rebellion. I feel like in the past, Detroiters have been resistant to talk about this time period um, because there was a stigma around that it, you know, Detroit never recovered from it. I I was more interested in looking at the era of the riots because of of this idea that Detroit had never recovered from it. Because it was around 2008, 2009, 2010, when I was working on this play, I had just experienced the foreclosure epidemic that happened <laughs> in Detroit. Yeah. And yeah. so for me, I wanted to know, oh, how did we never recover from the riots? Like, what happened? That was more really what I wanted to know. Detroit 67 takes place in the basement of a house in the neighborhood where a police crackdown rippled out into resistance and violence. Dominique has a character named Bunny. In the script notes, her description is black woman, mid to late 30s. Fun, spunky, sexy, and joyful. A friend and sometimes a lover. Never lets nothing get her down. I asked my friend, Africa McLean, to read a paragraph of Bunny from the script. While army tanks are rolling down the street, Bunny lets her memories take her somewhere else, talking to friends in the basement. Summer's usually my favorite time in Detroit. July's been the best. Got my first kiss in July over on Belle Isle, right by the beach. Me and Craig, what's his name? He was 15, and I was only 12. We met at the family reunion. Had never seen him before, but me and all the other cousins thought he was all kinds of fine. Had peach fuzz and everything. Shit drove me crazy. So while everybody else was building sandcastles and burying each other alive, we stole away behind the wreck building. And that's where we went for it. Kissing like crazy. Let him put his tongue in and everything. Tastes like salt water. But it was all right. Sweet, but a little nasty. Just how I like it. Even let him touch me on my butt and hold it real tight. Hope he wasn't a cousin. (laughs) After the reunion was over, I didn't see him no more. Didn't come back to Detroit the next time the reunion was here. All I got left to remember him by is that saltwater taste I get in my mouth when I think of July in Detroit. Wonder what my July memories are going to be like now. I think something else that your play does is uh, gives us, you know, a kind of humanity that's different from the newsreels that we see of that time. Yeah. I mean, for me, I always say, because for a very long time, I didn't even really know that I was a so-called, you know, like a political writer. I mean, I don't think of myself as like 
politics first or anything, you know? So, because from, for me, I, I'm more interested in people, not policy, not politics. I'm interested in the people behind politics, but I realize how political that is now. Um, and to remind, remind everyone that there are always people behind the policy. Um, or people behind, you know, propaganda. There's people behind headlines, and so for me, I'm I'm always as a writer going to be interested in who those people are. Um, and for Detroit '67 in particular, I wanted to know who are these people that in, inhabited the the. You, you say when you speak about riots, you civil unrest, and we've seen that happen right now in our nation. We talk about it with this idea of of like those troublemakers, you know? And I wanted to see who are the human beings who are trying to live their lives and, and you know, and ha make a little cash under, uh, under the table so that they can keep their son in school or whatever it is, and boom, this happens and they're in the middle of it. And they're gonna go down in history as being those troublemakers. We'll be back with more from Dominique Morisot talking about Pipeline, Shameless, and The Temptations after the break. If you're a new listener to Pure Nonfiction, explore our catalog of interviews with filmmakers such as Ava DuVernay, Raoul Peck, and Ezra Edelman. On episode 31, I spoke to author Brian Stevenson about his appearance in the film 13th. I went to Harvard Law School, and when I was at Harvard Law School, I didn't want anybody to know that I started my education in a colored school. I thought it would disadvantage me. I thought people would see that as a deficit. I didn't talk to people about being the great-grandson of enslaved people. I just thought that was not going to help me cope in this environment, which I was sort of insecure about being in in the first place. And what I've learned over the last decades is that for us to get free, for us to make progress, uh, everybody I talk to now has to hear me talk about starting my education in a colored school. I want them to know I'm the great grandson of enslaved people, and I want to resurrect this history that we have ignored or denied, or worse, distorted. You can hear all our episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or go to purenonfiction.net. Dominique said that she didn't start out as a political writer. I asked her if that's changed. Yes and no. I still, you know why I didn't think of myself as a political writer? Because again, I'm not thinking about it in terms of, of the politics as much as the people. So I remember I was, this is when I discovered that someone might think of me as a political writer. I was telling a friend of mine, this is very early on, really, really early on. All these play subjects that I'm about to say are going to sound like, when did you write those plays? Before anybody was pay <laughs> paying attention to what I was writing, that's when. Um, and I, I was telling a friend of mine about this play I had about this abortion clinic in Detroit where these protesters are trying to protest the, the people, the women inside. I was telling her about this other play I had about the University of Michigan and the um, uh, this this protest that happened at Michigan um, where it created all this division among the students after they were being racially profiled. Uh, I was talking about this other play, uh, you know, that I had about a civil rights activist coming to stay at a brothel uh, in, in, you know, <laughs> in Natchez. Then my friend goes, oh, so are, are all of your plays really political? And I was like, huh? <laughs> like, I literally was like, what? 
uh, <laughs> you know, and I had to hear that out loud. Like, oh, I hear what she just heard. I, I wasn't, I had no idea that that's what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? I was just, those were subject matters that interested me, but I didn't think of them as political. I don't know why. I just, I thought of them as uh, worlds that impact people that I care about. There, there were moments I lived through. I lived through that 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 protest at, at Michigan, you know. Or I, I, I know. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, and I've known people, and I've, I'm, I have firsthand, you know, world experience and like the resistance to that abortion clinic or whatever it is. So I've, I've, I've never thought of it as politics. I just know it. So, what was the seed for your new play, Pipeline? Now, when I started writing Pipeline, I was aware that I wanted to talk about the school to prison pipeline. Um, I'm a lot like I'm a lot more conscious that the things I want to talk about are political. I'm still not pushing a a political agenda per se, but I'm I'm aware that these are political things that come up in conversation and they're things that impact me and that itch me. So I want to I want to talk about them. For me, the school to prison pipeline was something really um, personal for me. As a teacher, as a daughter of a teacher, as a, a, you know, as a mentor to a lot of young students, you know, this is something that's really deeply concerning to me. Pipeline centers on a black single mother named Naya, who teaches in an urban public school. She has her son, Omari, enrolled in a boarding school. The title Pipeline never comes up explicitly in the play, but it refers to the pipeline of the education system that feeds kids from good schools to college and kids from bad schools to prison. Naya wants Amari in the good pipeline, but he gets into trouble that might disrupt that plan. I asked Dominique to read her description of Omari. What I said is he's a black man, late teens. He's smart and astute, rage without release, tender and honest at his core, something profoundly sensitive amidst the anger, wrestling with his identity between private school education and being from a so-called urban community, Naya's son. I think that's Omari for me. That's how I see him. I see him as smart and, and like what the character Jasmine says about him, actually. I see him through Jasmine's eyes, uh, beautiful and confused, you know, profoundly sensitive and full of rage. Um, and rage without release, which is what I think is really important in his character, that there's no space for him to have release for his anger, that rage is somehow criminalized. And I, I say it in the play and I say it in life, that rage is not a sin and it's not a crime. Um, and there is a such thing as righteous rage. There's a such thing as earned rage. And uh, and I think we just hear rage and we see rage associated with young black manhood and we we go terror monster. We start putting all this stuff on it. And in the play, a lot of our experience of Omari is through his mother, uh, Naya, uh, who's played by Karen Pittman marvelously. You said your your own mother was a teacher. How much of your mother is in the character of Naya? Or is it just coincidence? You know, I was, I laughed because my mother's gonna be like, I don't do that. I don't smoke and drink in class. <laughs> um, no, uh, I think the part that feels like my, my mother is um, in both of them wearing the master educator shoes. I think my mother is a dedicated, a completely overly dedicated teacher. And I think that's Naya. 
Um, I think she spends a lot of time in that school. As the, my mother spent all day and all night in her school. You know, she come home late from school, from working on lesson plans and fixing up her room for something she's going to do for her kids tomorrow. Um, you know, she'd have to get walked to her cars by the guards at night because uh, she'd be there so late. And I think that that's a level of passion and commitment in, in an urban environment that's like no other. And I think Naya is probably that teacher for her students. I think her students love her. I mean, one thing, if any educators are paying attention to that, to that scene that she's actually teaching, you know, kids are being funny and she's saying, okay, Paul, I think you can find another choice phrase, but we will take that one. But there's no discipline happening in that scene. There's just conversation and engagement. And I think when we think of public school, we think of hell breaking loose in class or whatever. And I'm like, no, they're actually engaged in their lesson. And I don't, I don't know if everybody pays attention to that in that scene, but that's a, that's a big part of that scene for me. It's like you're displaying the artistry of being a teacher. Yeah. One of the pleasures of seeing your plays uh, in the last year that I've seen three of them is seeing the work of all these great black actors who, uh, you know, I don't get to see that much on stage uh, otherwise. I'm, I'm sure they're doing stuff, but I'm missing it. And for sure, Karen Pittman in Pipeline was, uh, was a revelation to me. I wonder if you can talk about her and the qualities that she brings to that role. Oh, man. I mean, you know, everybody's bringing something very personal to them of themselves to the role. And Karen is just, I mean, she's a revelation. You know, we hunted Karen for the role because she's so good. <laughs> and uh, we were just already fans of her work as an actor anyway. But what she brings to this role is something so special because she is a mom of a son and a daughter. Um, she's a single mom. And so, and she's, you know, she'll tell you that about herself. And I think she knows this, this navigation of being very dedicated to, you know, uh, in her case, an audience, and in Naya's case, students, but being very dedicated to that world and also being dedicated to your, your children. And, um, but also that, that fear of a son, of a black male son, when there becomes that tear from them and you and they start to smell themselves and find their and navigate their own skin in this world and what that means in this world and how terrifying that is given our climate she's a master actor playing a master educator and it's just it's like i feel like you know she's she lifts this this play um into into the stratosphere in a way that, like not many people could. If you go to see Pipeline at Lincoln Center, you'll find an insert in your program titled Playwrights Rules of Engagement. There's a backstory to this paper. Dominique wrote an article for American Theater Magazine where she describes attending a play and being shushed by a white audience member. The rules of engagement is her response. My friend Africa McLean reads it. Playwright's rules of engagement. You are allowed to laugh audibly. You are allowed to have audible moments of reaction and response. My work requires a few uh-huhs and mm-mms should you need to use them. Just maybe in moderation, only when you really need to vocalize. This can be church for some of us, and testifying is allowed. This is also live theater, and the actors need you to engage with them, not distract them or thwart their performance. 
Please be an audience member that joins with others and allows a bit of breathing room. Exhale together. Laugh together. Say amen should you need to. This is community. Let's go. So I'm really happy that I really wanted to put that in and, and Lincoln Center was very open to it. And it was like, sure, let's print our rules of engagement. Um, I didn't question it, just put it in, um, which I thought was really supportive of them. And uh, I wanted that to be there because I, I knew that I was working very closely with the Lincoln Center marketing team to, to diversify the audience at Lincoln Center, um, to bring in you know, the village that I come from, which is younger artists of all backgrounds, um, uh, or if not younger, then artists of varying cultural backgrounds. And I wanted them to feel welcome in the space. And I know I've had experiences before in theater where when, for instance, Black audience members come and experience my work in a space that is not predominantly Black, uh, there's a lot of policing that goes on about the way that they watch theater. And so I just wanted to, to make sure that those audiences feel welcome, like that they have room to, do, to watch theater in the way that is normal and natural for them. And that they allow, and that if there's some kind of rule set up that they feel comfortable doing that, and other people who are reading those rules who would normally not engage in theater that way also can see that there's actually space for that to happen. Maybe they'll have a new kind of theater experience and that could be great for everybody. Um, or they don't have to. I'm, I'm sort of saying this is everybody is welcome here. You bring you can bring your rules, your own way of watching theater into this room. But just know that other people are going to have their way of watching and that all your ways are welcome, I think, is an important thing to have said. I thought it was brilliant. And uh, when I went to see Paradise Blue in Chicago and I opened up the playbook, I was like, where are the rules of engagement? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, anyone, you know, some theaters have already asked me, can we use this for the play we have going up here? I'm like, please, like, this is a, I'm trying to start a movement with this. Like anyone who wants these rules can take them. These are not trademarked. You can have them. You know, <laughs> I'm like, I want people to, you know, maybe they're trademarked, but you can still have them. <laughs> you, know, you can still use them. I won't sue. If you don't have the chance to see Dominique's plays, you can still read them. Several are published by Samuel French. You can also experience her writing on Shameless. The Showtime series stars William Macy as Frank Gallagher, a deadbeat alcoholic father who's always scheming while his children clean up his messes. Dominique joined the writer's room for season six. I asked if she's able to see her contributions amidst a group effort. Yes. In not just in episodes I've written, you know, there was a big character in season six, uh, one of Carl's friends, um, who was a young black male who he got out of uh, jail with and who was his good friend. And his backstory was very much a big push from me and, and, um, and from stories that I've known of young men. And I really pushed for that in season six. I was a new writer on a team and I only did one episode that season, but, uh, that was a, I felt very much a part of creating that I, Carl's story and his identity that season. And that was a season everybody really was responding to Carl in a big way. But I felt like a big part of that. Uh, and, and some of the big things that happened for him weren't even in my episode. He actually, that young man wasn't even, he was gone by the time my episode came up uh, that I wrote. But I felt very much a part of 
who he was. And I think, you know, last last season, I think I was responsible in my own episode for for a big, a major character coming back, um, a very loved character on the show coming back. I don't know if you watched the show, but it was a story. I had an episode when Mickey came back. And if you know anything about Shameless fans, you know that they are crazy about this character who is barely on our show <laughs> anymore. But like he has the biggest fan base of everybody. Um, so you had a big hand in bringing back Mickey. Yeah, well, I did. I, the decision was made to bring him back, but I had the episode where he comes back. So I had to do, I had to handle that. And that's a hand. That's a heavy one to handle for fans, <laughs> you know. Um, but I felt my my fingerprints are all over that episode. Dominique's next project is her upcoming musical about the Temptations called "Ain't Too Proud to Beg." It has a run at the Berkeley Repertory Theater from August thirty first to October eighth. You know, I'm working with Des McAnuff, um, Tom Hulse, and Ira Pittleman, who are two producers. Um, and uh, Berkeley rep. But Tom and Ira and Des came to me uh, when they were interested in doing that. They had already been in talks with uh, the Temptations <laughs> um, entity and wanted me to come on board to write the book for this musical. And it's the first musical I've ever written. Um, and it feels like the right one because I wasn't so, you know, I've always been interested in musical theater, but not quite sure how, where my entry point is to it. And this was my entry point. It felt like the right entry point. I love this group. I grew up on this group. This is my mama's favorite group. Um, I feel I, I, not I don't just love the group, though. I love the story. And I read Otis Williams um, biography and I thought this is. I want to tell this story. Uh, I think there's something really exciting about this idea of a young group of black men who were in the middle of their own social and civic unrest and they were singing love ballads, you know, <laughs> and trying to figure out who they were in the middle of the storm of politics that was happening around them. They were actually ascending into like iconic statuses and integrating the world while the world was falling apart. So, um, or integrating the country while the country was falling apart. So I think it's just something, um, th their story's profound to me and I'm super moved by it. And I just, I love it. I want to thank Dominique Morisot for speaking with me. If you're in New York, go see her play Pipeline at Lincoln Center before it closes on August 27th. If you're in the Bay Area, watch out for Ain't Too Proud to Beg, coming to the Berkeley Repertory Theater. This episode would not have been possible without my brother, PJ Powers, the artistic director of Chicago's Timeline Theater. He's put on two of Dominique's plays, including Paradise Blue that just concluded. And he's the person who turned me on to her work. If you're in Chicago, consider getting a subscription to Timeline Theater, now celebrating its 20th anniversary. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo, sound mixer, Tom Micah, guest reader, Africa McLean, web designer, Cross Strategy, social media master, Jordan Smith, and executive producer, Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at Pure nonfiction.net.